Welcome, everyone. As always, it's lovely to see so many people uh, from so many places. And it's a real inspiration that uh, you'd be with me here today for this way-seeking mind on the road to Dharma transmission. It's been a very long time since I've uh, worn these robes in this formal way, and today is um, the appropriate day to do it. <clears throat> As you uh, watch um, the bows and the use of the bowing cloth, the sitting and arranging things, you can understand the, the joke that uh, Ed Brown once made when asked, what does it mean to, to be a priest and have Dharma transmission? And he said, it's primarily fabric management. But today, we're going to speak uh, about the, the mind that seeks the way, and specifically in reference to this road to Dharma transmission, which I've been fortunate to uh, find myself on. In Japanese, a way-seeking mind is doshin-do, which literally translates as uh, being aware of or turning toward the Tao, the way. So what is it that turns us toward practice? And how, how does this um, look for us. Here's some words from um, Suzuki Roshi, and I want to start with a small, very brief quote that is unedited. You know, we read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and other things, and there's this beautiful language, but English was his second language, and he struggled mightily, and it's amazing what he was able to accomplish. But listen carefully to his actual words from 1970. And I, of course, as I listen I, to myself read, I think in my mind about his accent, which I'm not going to do, but I hear his voice saying, way seeking mind is most important. This kind of chance is um, usually some difficult situation. When you have some difficulty in your everyday life, I think you will have, uh, you know, there you will have chance to arise way-seeking mind. Once you arise the way-seeking mind, your practice is on track. Way-seeking mind is most important. And he called it a chance, an opportunity. <laughs> You know, most of us come to practice, I know I came to practice, through two, two primary invitations or side roads, which is great difficulty, how life brings us to our knees and asks more of us than we think we can offer, we have to turn to something, and or great inspiration. You see someone who manifests in front of you a way of being that it's like, who, what is that? I, I know that there's something that they're expressing that I want. 
and for me there was some of each. If you will take a look at the image on the scroll that's next to me, it's a beautiful old, old scroll um, that I actually just received recently as a birthday present. And more, now these are edited words, we're moving forward in time, <laughs> edited words of Suzuki Roshi. He said, Zen is to feel your way along in the dark, not knowing what you'll meet, not already knowing what to do. Most of us don't like going slowly, and we would like to think it is possible to figure everything out ahead of time. But if you go too fast, or not careful enough, you'll bump into things. So you feel your way along in the dark, slowly and carefully. And the editor said he gestured with his hand out in front of him, feeling his way in the empty air. And he finished, he said, when you do things with this spirit, you don't know what the result will be. But because you carefully feel your way along, the results will be okay. You can trust what will happen. You know, I certainly did not know what would be the result of my beginning a very naive and simple meditation practice, which I began to help me manage the stress of graduate school at about the same time as Suzuki Roshi was speaking these words. You know, I could feel some spirit in me that I couldn't quite name that wanted a way to express itself. But at the same time, I didn't have any models to guide me, nor any real help with what I was turning toward and touching as I felt my way along in the dark. I was being trained as a biomedical scientist, so had that perspective to guide me. My body, managing stress, trying to be healthy. And, and on the other hand, I had the, in the background, the Christianity of my childhood as a map for life. And as you can imagine, I experienced a pretty big gap between the two. And I could not have imagined all that I've bumped into in this life, that this would have happened. That I would find myself in this seat and these kinds of clothes, speaking to all of you, this beloved and inspiring community gathering all over the world. And right now I feel immensely grateful to be sitting in this small room on a hillside on the island of Molokai here in Hawaii with my partner of 41 years, Aaron, and my longtime friend and Dharma sister, Paula, both sitting right here in the room with me. I really never dreamed of this kind of support. In the image on the scroll beside me, I hope you can see that the right hand is gently and peacefully at rest. And the left hand is vibrant and active, reaching out to discern what, what is the next step. Both are so gracefully rendered and you can see that the figure is blindfolded. I would imagine not actually blind, but still unable to see. 
in Buddhist iconography, in some ways of understanding, the right hand, the hand at rest in the image, is sometimes thought of, uh, thought to represent wisdom. And the left hand, reaching so beautifully, making the way manifest, is often thought to represent skillful means. And my humble aspiration has been to be, in some ways, spiritually ambidextrous, as it were, opening to the wisdom in which we're all immersed, prajna paramita, and then manifesting something for the benefit of others, upaya. And in a sense, a way-seeking mind talk speaks to both of these hands, these two functions. And speaking about one's spiritual life can be a bit like writing an acknowledgement for a book, which is mostly composed of gratitude for everyone who's helped along the way, and which inevitably results in many people being left out. And so for that, I offer my sincere apology from the beginning. The story, the larger story of this practice is embodied in these uh, clothes that I'm wearing. The okesa on the outside, the patched robe, is the same patched robe that the Buddha's first disciples in India sewed together from discarded cloth, cloth they took from the charnel grounds where the bodies had been burned, cleaned them, dyed them, sewed them together, made their robes. And we do the same thing now in making the, the beautiful okesa and this uh, fashion and the noe sewing discipline from, from Japan, which my teacher Blanche Hartman was one of the, uh, the care, uh, women who carried forward this, this uh, discipline. So this, we start in India with the Buddha. And when Bodhidharma, the legendary figure, moved through the mountains into China and brought the Buddhist teaching to China, to the Taoist monks, and Chan was developed. That's the Koromo. That's the next level, the, the black robe with the big sleeves. This is Chinese, the Koromo. So we go from India to China. And when Dogen also brought our practice from China to Japan, then underneath is the kimono and the juban, the underrobes, which are Japanese. So these are layers of transmission. And underneath it all is a less esoteric name, uh, Calvin Klein, American underwear. <laughs> so we go all the way from India into China, through Japan to America and the West. This is how we wear the universal teaching which we chant and, and the verse of the robe. Wearing the universal teaching, we realize the one true nature. But also, in this case, it brings us closer to the ancestors. And there's a beautiful story from the collection of our ancestor stories. And many of you have heard it, but it's worth repeating at this, in this situation. The 41st ancestor in this lineage, Ryozan Inkan, 
was the attendant to his teacher, the, the 41st ancestor, Duan Kanshi. And because Rosan Inkan was his uh, attendant, he carried his robe for him. And there was a moment in which it was time to put on the okesa. And so uh, Ryozan handed the robe to, uh, to Duan Kanshi. And when he was putting on the robe, Duan said to his disciple, who was waiting patiently, what is the business under this patched robe? You know, it's one of those questions that you know has a deeper meaning than just, oh, the kimono, the karomo. What is the business under the patched robe? And Ryozan couldn't answer. And so Duan Kanshi said to wear this robe and not understand the great matter is the greatest suffering. Now you ask me. In other words, to, to wear this and not understand, not just what the robe is, but what it represents and what it calls us to is the greatest suffering. Now you ask me. So, so the student, Ryozan, said to the teacher, what, what is the business under the patched robe? And the teacher said, intimacy. Intimacy. And startled, Ryozan bowed to his teacher in gratitude, tears flowing, which I can barely feel in the back of my throat, actually. And the teacher said, so what is it that you've understood? Can you express it to me? And Ryozan just repeated back to him, what is the matter under this robe? Intimacy. And his teacher said, yes, intimacy, an even greater intimacy. And this is what we, we meet today as we meet. And speaking of being close to the ancestors, my first way seeking mind talk was actually done at Rinsuen in Japan in 1998. Um, it was Suzuki Roshi's home temple near Yaizu, Japan. And in the audience, just like the sweet people that are with me now, uh, was Blanche Hartman, my ordination teacher, Sojin Mel Weissman, her transmission teacher, Huitsu Suzuki, who completed Mel's transmission, and we were sitting in the room where uh, Shunryu Suzuki lived and worked until he came to his um, his last part of work in his life, which is in San Francisco. And many of my Dharma friends were there, including Victoria Austin, who is, along with Peg, assisting mightily in my Dharma transmission ceremonies. And Vicky's been with me through, through my whole um, training time at San Francisco Zen Center. And we were visiting sites together, feeling the intimacy of walking in the footsteps of the ancestors. We went to uh, uh, Sojiji and Eheji, the two main temples in the Soto sect, the two sort of Vatican's as it were, as Blanche confirmed her Dharma transmission in the old way. We offered incense at the, in the Dharma hall and at the altar where Dogen practice, knowing his ashes were right behind that altar. Dogen said in his instructions for Zazen, you should therefore cease from practice 
based on intellectual understanding, pursuing words, following after speech and learn the backward step that turns your light inwardly to illuminate yourself. Learn the backward step. Having been trained as a scientist and being very intellectual, I had to learn the, to step back from intellectual understanding, pursuing words and following after speech to turn my light inward. And so I want to continue by stepping back historically. So if we step back now to Esalen, in December of 1993, I went with um, a small group of uh, friends that uh, I shared a psychotherapy practice with in Austin because we wanted to spend some time with Ron Kurtz. He was offering one of his very first Loving Presence workshops. He just cultivated this and um, thought this would be a lovely way to uh, get some additional training. And it didn't hurt that we would be able to be in the warm baths along the Big Sur coast. And it was quite a revelatory time meeting Ron and doing that training. But also there was a, a young man who was part of that workshop who during a break, I was getting to know him a bit. And I said, you know, something about what he said, I just came from a, a practice period at Green Gulch. I said, what's a practice period? And where's Green Gulch? <laughs> and he began to tell me that it was the the farm uh, associated with the uh, San Francisco Zen Center in a practice period was a hundred day period, essentially of intense focus. And he was reading Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. A step along the path had opened up. And I immediately came home, talked to Aaron about this and made arrangements in the spring of 1994 to go to Green Gulch and do a one day sitting. The week afterwards, we'd all decided, a lot of our friends and including Aaron decided we would go to Esalen uh, again, because it was so enjoyable. And our excuse this time was that Lama Suryadas, Lama Suryadas was offering a Dzogchen retreat for a week. And we thought that that would be interesting. So my good friend Paul Crafts drove me from the airport in San Francisco through the city over the Golden Gate into Marin County to the Green Dragon Temple and dropped me off for my one day sitting. I had never sat before in a zendo. I'd never eaten orioki. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. They asked me if I was sitting. I said, yes. And they said, can you sit for 40 minutes? I said, sure. And they said, can you do it something like 10 times in the day? And I lied and said, yes. Not knowing what I would experience. And it was hideously difficult. <laughs> it was very painful and disorienting. And I felt oddly like I was at home, not the pain, not that. And I immediately began to make uh, plans to return. When Paul picked me up to take me back through San Francisco and then down the beautiful coast to Esalen, I was kind of like in a trance and a daze because of this challenging, but, I, but it was as if I was remembering something, not learning something new. And I spent most of that time at Esalen, not in the retreat, but at the little roundhouse, if any of you have ever been there, it's a small zendo and a little gully 
on the top of a stream just before a waterfall, taking care of that tiny zendo all week, sweeping, cleaning, and sitting pretty much by myself, wondering how this way was opening. I immediately made plans to be a, a guest at city center in the city, and that's where I met Blanche. Uh, many of you have heard and um, in a ceremony, just a morning service one day as I was watching her do bows as you watched me do. There was an, a dignity in what I saw her doing in her bows. And it was stunning to me. I thought, whatever that is, I want to learn about that. And so I met her and we, we began our long relationship. I studied the precepts. I came back and so to Rakasu with her. Uh, and did Jukai or took the precepts in the spring of 1995. I don't usually mess around. It's kind of Suzuki Roshi was talking about going too fast. But Blanche became the first female abbot about that time. She ascended the mountain seat, as they say. And a, two curious things happened at that time. She invited Richard Baker to come back to San Francisco Zen Center for the first time since his expulsion after the difficulties in the early 80s. And as you can imagine, this was an electric moment as he walked back into that building, which he hadn't walked back into since 1983. He gave a beautiful talk. I don't remember anything he said. What I remember is what she said. If we can't heal this kind of thing, our practice is useless for not willing to turn back towards things that are broken and help mend them. What are we doing? Robert Aiken Roshi, who at that time, I guess he would be considered the Dean of American Zen. He was an old man then, uh, you know, from Honolulu, was there as a guest for the mountain seat ceremony. And I saw him at breakfast and I went up to Blanche and I said, is that Aiken Roshi? And she said, yeah, He's, she said, he loves talking to students. Go sit down and have breakfast with him. This is like, for me, like going sitting down with a celebrity at a restaurant or something. But I went over and bowed and took my seat, and he was so kind to me. He invited me up to his room because he wanted to talk a little bit, and he signed a book. And he said, I said I was going to be on Kauai the following summer, and he said, oh, we're going to do a Zazenkai just when you're there. Why don't you come to our three-day sitting? And so I extended my stay at the end of our vacation time, and had my first sitting beyond one day. And as I left, this will tell you the timing. Uh, as I left, the students, um, oh, another thing, he got sick and couldn't come. And his senior students uh, offered us a wonderful retreat, but they said, well, since he couldn't come, when you leave, why don't you call him when you get to Honolulu? It's like, really? And they said, yeah, here's his number. Well. I called from the American terminal on a payphone. That gives you an idea of when, when it was. He answered the phone and I said, uh, uh, Roshi, this is Flint Sparks. And his first words were, oh, Flint, I'm so sorry I disappointed you. That humility and kindness was what I was beginning to discover in a unique way. Meanwhile, and as a follow-up to this Loving Presence workshop I did with Ron at Esalen, he had let us know at that time that he was going to start a new kind of Hakomi training. He was living in Ashland, but this was going to be in a retreat center near uh, Azalea, not too far from where 
where Paula lives, <clears throat> called Psychotherapy as Spiritual Practice. Well, that sounded good to me. And so several of um, my friends, four of us signed up. And for three years, we spent one full month of August in that retreat center, in that training. During one of the uh, years, Ron brought Lama Lodro, a very esteemed Tibetan uh, Lama, and um, they were going to they were going to do a medicine Buddha empowerment. We were all therapists, so we could have a private interview with him if we wanted. So I went and talked to him, and I said, uh, "Lama, I'm 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 sorry. I'm about to take refuge, and you're going to give me a name and do this empowerment." But I have a Zen teacher, and I'm about to take um, Jukai with her. Is there a problem? And in his broken English, he said. Oh, he was very funny. Oh, no, no, I just introduced you to Buddha. <laughs> uh, the name that he gave me, Tsewang Norbu, means uh, life force jewel. And that year we did the Medicine Buddha Empowerment, and the next year we did the Shinrezi, or the Buddha of Compassion Empowerment. Ultimately, that training led me to be a legacy holder for Ron Kirks, um, for which I'm very grateful. Uh, we also participated in Hakomi for the Buddhist Minded for two years in Austin. And two people showed up for that first uh, retreat <clears throat> from Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, so when uh, Mickey, Joe, and Catherine showed up and invited me to Madison, it opened the entire gate for the Open Doors Zen community, which exists now. During the training in Oregon, <clears throat> pardon me, I also met another big turning point in my life, uh, Donna Martin. This was the first time she had taught uh, as a assistant to Ron. And so for those three years, we spent these months together and found that we are, people teased us about being twins separated at birth. She invited me to teach with her in various places in Hakomi trainings. She invited me to Molokai, and we taught here for the first time in 1999, which led to this. She invited me to teach with her in the UK, which led to the Just This family of Sanghas, which now populate all across that beautiful small island. And in those trainings, I met Sophie Cartier, who from the UK invited me to come to Switzerland. And for 10 years, each year, we would teach together in the mountains. This is great, amazing, life-turning events. But let's step back even further, another level. When we came back from some of those retreats at Esalen, we decided we should continue to sit. And so on Thursday nights, in my group room at my psychotherapy office, we set up a little group, and we didn't have a teacher, but we had, at that time we played tapes, and uh, listen to Jack Cornfield or uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, someone, uh, and we would sit and discuss, and it was a, a lovely, lovely group. I began to go to San Francisco and, and train more formally, and one of my, my friends, Bill Magnus, at that time, he, uh, he wanted to sit, and he said, I, I know that you're, you're training, can I sit with you? And I said, well, I don't know what I'm doing, but sure. So we began to sit on Thursday mornings, at my office. We'd show up before we both went to work. He was an attorney. And sometimes he would come and sometimes he wouldn't. 
And we would read one chapter of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. We'd set up some incense and a candle. And, and eventually my yoga teacher, Devin Diedrich, joined us because she wanted to sit and I needed her so I could sit like this. And when Devin eventually created a new studio in North Austin, there was one small room about the size of the one we're sitting in now that she wasn't using. And I had just come back from Japan and she said, I won't charge you any rent or anything if you want to make it into a Zendo. And so I spent a lot of time creating the best little tiny Zendo I could. Her studio was called Clear Spring Yoga Studio. So this was Clear Spring Zendo after Barton Springs in, in Austin. The day it was dedicated, it was too small because people came very quickly. We outgrew it and eventually Peg actually moved her group into it because Peg had been, has her own sitting group, Ordinary Mind group, uh, at a Unitarian church in North Austin. And many other things ensued. Uh, Betty Holmes, a great bodhisattva in Texas, built a cooking school in one of her um, beautiful homes and properties uh, along the Pernalis River. Erin actually helped her as her uh, assistant in that. And it became very clear that there was more of a call for a retreat center than a cooking school. And although we brought wonderful uh, cooks like Ed Brown and Deborah Madison to both teach the Dharma and cook, eventually we also began, began to bring um, um, people like uh, Reb Anderson and Blanche and people began to do retreats. And uh, Ron came, and we did more Hakomi trainings. And then uh, Dick Schwartz came, and we did IFS trainings. All those teachers began to flow into this beautiful place. And Betty built another structure on top of what used to be an old tennis court, which she called the Buddha Barn, quite lovely. And it was in that uh, structure uh, that I was ordained by, uh, by Blanche and, and Barbara Cohen. We found a new space to meet in town also. Uh, Austin Zen Center was founded. It became a nonprofit. I asked that the temple have a name. I named it Zen Keiji after Blanche because there were no temples named after women. They're all named after men. Zen Kei, inconceivable joy. G, the mountain. It's the mountain of inconceivable joy. Uh, and we outgrew that small space. And Jill Wilkinson, another great bodhisattva in Texas, offered us the Friends Meeting House, which was being sold. And does it, Sam, uh, we brought a teacher from the San Francisco Zen Center, Barbara, and my ordination was in 2001. So that's just a quick kind of view from what happened in Texas at that time. But about that same time, after 9-11, Peg Syverson showed up at Austin Zen Center, uh, kind of leveled after 9-11 and needing a place and we met. And that meeting was the next auspicious turn. So if we step back even further, a deeper layer, a deeper level. <clears throat> My academic training in biology had been primarily because I was just simply fascinated with life, the mystery of life. So I had degrees in biology and chemistry, and I thought about going to medical school. But one of the um, 
kind of calling courses that you call it, you know, in for medical school was comparative anatomy. You may have to, have to take this too. And I can remember in the comparative anatomy class I took, 69% um, of the people dropped. 50% of the people failed that remained. I made the only A and was then hospitalized. I thought at that, I hadn't had any therapy at that time before I had meditated. I thought if I go to medical school, I'll die uh, from perfectionism, basically. So I continued in biology, became a research, undergraduate research fellow of Argonne National Labs in Chicago. I had a special fellowship in developmental biology at the Marine Biological Laboratories in Woods Hole. Um, eventually went to Johns Hopkins University for a PhD in cell and molecular biology. And I discovered something really, really important. I absolutely love studying science and I do not like doing it. It's very fascinating, but the life of a scientist wasn't what I had imagined in the, uh, my idealism. <clears throat> so this was one of my first big reckonings. Between, as I was waiting for my experiments in the lab to complete, I was reading about psychotherapy. <laughs> Other graduate students, literally, waiting outside my door to talk to me. It's like, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> so I eventually realized I would have to leave. I finished all my coursework for my PhD, not, not my research. I had one paper published along with another laboratory. And I asked if I could have a master's degree and leave my PhD program which they said, uh, no. I said, well, I'm going to leave anyway. And eventually they actually did offer it to me. Um, I went back to psychology, ended up in the Fielding University in Santa Barbara, California, following my former mother-in-law, that's another story, who had been to Fielding, who had introduced me to John Gladfelter, who became my primary mentor for my entire life. Uh, life as a psychotherapist and began at age of 25 in that PhD program. I got a job with Carl and Stephanie Simonton who were doing cutting edge research in behavioral medicine and oncology care and cancer. Worked with them and taught nationally and internationally for several years until I was, um, I assist them in, in writing their book, Getting Well Again. And then a program at, in Denver at Presbyterian St. Luke's the Cancer Self-Help Program uh, asked me to come be their director. I also worked with the American Cancer Society in their I Can Cope and Cancer Mount programs. Through all this time as a psychologist, as a clinical psychologist, I never spent one day on a psych floor and I spent decades on medical surgical floors. I graduated with my PhD in clinical psych uh, and Aaron and I decided we'd move to Austin as I'd always had the idea of being in practice with my old friend, Linda McCarley, who I had known since I was 14 years old. Curiously, she had finished her nursing training at Presbyterian Hospital, where I later directed the cancer program. And she and her husband lived in Castle Rock, where Erin kind of grew up and went to school, because Bill, her husband, had been in the military, in the Air Force Academy. So interesting karmic connections. But Linda and I finished our PhDs the same year. We started Westlake Psychotherapy Center 
which was the, the hugely significant portion of my career as a psychotherapist in Austin. I still consulted with cancer centers um, around the country, including MD Anderson, and immersed myself in people who were facing the great matter. So now another personal reckoning, going deeper. People were coming to me asking questions that my psychological training couldn't reach. My psychological training helped a lot with the patients, with their families, with the staff who were stressed. They were useful, but not sufficient. And the spiritual path of my youth was powerful, but and it was all encompassing as a child, but it wasn't what I needed to bring to, the, to these folks. My grandfather was a Baptist minister. I remember watching him preach as a kid and being inspired by the sort of dignity that he demonstrated. There were other problems, but I was really taken with it as a kid. And we would sing an old hymn. Some of you from the South will know this one called Just As I Am. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. It's as if you could come to, you could follow the way, just like you are, and you'd be accepted. Only as I look closer over time, I realize actually that church did not want me as a young gay boy. And so I stepped away. And it was easier when I was far from home when I went to Baltimore and Johns Hopkins to come more to terms with who I was. And about the same time, HIV and AIDS came on the scene. I was blessedly spared. I'm not sure why. But many of my friends and cohorts were dying, not just the older people in the cancer centers where I was working. So the questions of soul or spirituality became really, really more important. And I wasn't sure where to turn. But because I was trained in biofeedback and medical hypnosis, visualizations, the way the mind worked, I knew had a big impact on health. And when I began to look at Buddhism, I was startled to find something I didn't know, which is the Buddha was only interested in one question. Why do we suffer? And how should we understand suffering? And it's, and it's resolution. And I thought, well, I'm in the suffering business, so this is perfect. So I began uh, to study Buddhism and begin to practice in the ways that I've spoken about. And I was given tools, both in psychotherapy and in the spiritual practice of Zen, which is the, the lineage in which I, I chose. I saw in psychotherapy, people make remarkable changes, really turn their lives. I also saw that in many ways, people would get caught in endless loops of self-reflection and self-identification, self-help. And it's as if that, if that was their perspective, it was hard to know how to step beyond that. There was no non-dual practice to step beyond the self or look at the self. They were helping. And I spent decades in monasteries and temples seeing people who understood the Dharma beautifully, could express it. But when they sat and things would bubble up from their past, their conditioning, even trauma, they had no idea what to do with it. And the instruction to sit more didn't help. But if you put those two things together, beautiful psychological understanding and insight and a powerful spiritual practice to look at the very foundation of self itself. You have then what you all heard me talk about is the double helix, my old biology background, 
the double helix of growing up and waking up, of growing up into our full personhood psychologically and waking up in the service of maturity uh, spiritually. And this became the foundation of my own spiritual practice in the way uh, that I taught. If we come forward to 2007, <clears throat> I was still very much involved in my um, relationship to the Austin Zen Center, but things were becoming more complex. The office that I had, which is part of that center, was taken over more and more by activities of the of Austin Zen Center, so I needed to find a new office. Blanche had offered me lay entrustment. She couldn't actually get full support from San Francisco Zen Center to give me Dharma transformation at that time because I'd not spent a huge amount of time in practice periods at Tassajara, although I'd, I'd trained there quite a bit. So she saw me as a teacher. She recognized that with lay entrustment. And I remember at the end of that ceremony, she said, I hope you'll stay here and teach because I think she could feel my stepping away, which I, I did. I eventually moved out of my office there at Austin Zen Center. And I needed a place to work to see my clients in my psychotherapy practice. We'd completed a three-year training in Peg's house, where Apamata is housed now, with Ron Kurtz and Donna. And for those of you that go back this far, there was an old garage behind Peg's house. And so she decided to transform it into an alley house, an actual place she could rent out, and that would become my office, which it did. And once I was there, I had no particular designs on forming anything, and she had her small sitting group. But our coming together created something that blossomed and eventually became Apamata. It was a kind of a catalyst. Peg introduced me to Joko. We visited her. We made several trips there to discuss what was happening. We also went to the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies in Massachusetts and consulted with Mu Song, who was pivotal in encouraging us in this new direction that things were going. So I know this is a, a way of following a path. It's sort of like the stepping stones in a pathway that aren't, they don't touch each other, but if you step on one and you can maybe make it to the next one as you find your way along. Remember Suzuki Roshi, Zen is to feel your way along in the dark, not knowing what you'll meet, not already knowing what to do. Most of us don't like going slowly and we'd like to think it's possible to figure everything out ahead of time. But if you go too fast or not careful enough, you'll bump into things. So you feel your way along in the dark, slowly and carefully. Eventually, Peg was offered lay entrustment as well. She had been ordained at the Austin Zen Center. She in some ways at that time, I think would say that she saw me as a primary teacher for her, although I couldn't do the, um, the ordination but Barbara Cohn was quite generous and had me sit with her at the table during the ordination. We did it together. Then years later, having received entrustment from Blanche, I offered entrustment to Peg. 
because we had become very active participants in the establishment of the Lays in Teachers Association. So we were kind of hybrids. Here we were ordained uh, priests, but we were entrusted in, in, as lay teachers. Peg eventually decided that Dharma transmission was important, not, not for her as an achievement, but for the Sangha to provide a, a strong and stable base and to complete something we'd begun in our uh, ordination uh, arc. And for many reasons, I did not go in that direction at that time. But another turning point happened is during that time, Blanche died. And so I, I was sort of unable to receive full transmission from my root teacher. The last time that we met, we were at a Lazen Teachers Association meeting, actually in San Francisco. And I called up Blanche and asked if I could take her to dinner. Uh, she was happy to hear from me, and so I drove in to, to City Center, and there was a, a restaurant that's just catty corner to City Center where I knew I could take her, which wouldn't be too too far away. I arrived and knocked on the door, um, which is some security there because of the place it is, and uh, she opened the door, and there she was <laughs> with her, her purse and her cane and her little hat on. She was ready to go. And I said, I brought my rakasu, and I wondered if, since this is my home temple, if I could offer incense in the Buddha Hall, which is right off of the foyer, the, the large Buddha Hall. She said, sure, come. So we opened the doors and turned on the lights, and she sat on the bench in the back. Well, I did my bows, as you saw earlier. Uh, didn't actually offer incense because we didn't light all of it up. But I went to the altar in front of the beautiful Gandharan Buddha there did my bows, uh, and then we made our exit and closed the Buddha Hall. I managed to get her down the steps, across the street, up the steps to the restaurant. We had a lovely time. Back again across the street. And we came back into the center. I said, well, let me, let me get you back to your room. She lived on the second floor in the apartment where uh, um, Shunryu Suzuki and uh, Mitsui lived for many years. Uh, she and her husband had lived there, and Lou had died previously. But they'd installed, you know, one of those little chairs that goes up the steps because Lou and Blanche couldn't make it up the steps anymore. So I got her in the seat, and I walked up as she made her way up. As we got on the landing on the second floor, she got off with her cane, and we began to walk by two French doors that were closed. Behind that, I knew, was the small room of the Kaisanda, which is called was the Founder's Hall. Every temple has one of these. It's closed at night. She said, wait. Let's pay our respects. So she opened the doors and she reached in and turned on the light. And it's a small room with a bowing mat, a beautiful altar, and a, a statue of Suzuki Roshi that's pretty much life-size. It was a very small man, carved out of wood, sitting on the altar. And behind them, windows that go down into the courtyard. So the evening light and the breeze was coming in. She said, would you like to pay your respects? I said, sure. So I took off my shoes to step up into the room. And as I stepped in with one foot, she grabbed my arm. And she began to talk to him. She said, Roshi, here's one of your students. 
And she talked a bit about some of this history that I've talked about. Then she released my arm. I went in and did my bows. <clears throat> we came back out, turned off the light, closed the door. And that was the transmission. I walked her to her room. We kissed each other on the cheek and said goodbye. And it was the last time I saw her. So here we are. Some years later, Vicki Austin, who I mentioned, who was Blanche's assistant so many times, called me and said, you know, Blanche wouldn't want to leave you hanging. And it was incomplete ceremonially. And so we initiated with Peg, with Peg <clears throat> the idea of my completing karma transmission, this road that we're on. <clears throat> and we find ourselves here together today. So Suzuki Roshi again here at the end. He said, the way seeking mind should be realized in our actual world which includes flowers and stones and stars and moon. The true way-seeking mind can only, can only be actualized in full scale where there are human beings. There is the sun and stars, land and ocean, fish and grass and birds. And when we become aware of this big realm which includes everything, then we have big, big mind and big, big trust. Actually, the way seeking mind is the conviction to fly as a bird that flies in the air to enjoy our being in this vast world of freedom. Remember, he said, when you do things with this spirit, you don't know what the result will be. But because you carefully feel your way along, the result will be okay. You can trust what will happen. And apparently this is what has happened. So I thank all of you for your love and support, for your wholehearted practice, for your dedication, for your amazing uh, love and generosity towards me and to Peg and all that Appamana has become. Please carry it forward. Please take this practice and carry it forward as, as I have. This is our, uh, our responsibility and our joy. Thank you very much. I'll say goodbye for today and look forward to seeing you on 
other days at other times. Some of you at some point I'll be able to actually hug in person. <laughs> Others will continue to see each other online. But this is how the Dharma flows. As we, as we reach out to wake the way, make the way manifest, even though we don't know how it will go. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here. And uh, if you'd like to make a contribution to Flint's Dharma transmission, please do go to the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. So I'm quite emotional after that. It was wonderful, wasn't it? Thank you all so much. Love to you all. Thank you.